invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. And again he set out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited to those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their, went their ways, one to his own farm and another to his business. Before we turn our attention to the text this morning, I just got to share something with you. I wish everyone could have been here this past Thursday when Alex put on Christ in baptism. It was absolutely the most wonderful sight that you could ever imagine. I've been preaching for 51 years, and I have to say that that was the single greatest confession of faith I've ever heard. We're standing in the water. I waited until we were in the water, and Tucker was there helping, and uh, and, and he's facing forward looking at the water. I'm looking to Alex's side. And I'm ready to take his confession. And I say, Alex, do you believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? He turned and looked me square in the face and he said, well, everybody knows that. (laughs) And I said something along the lines of, I I wish they did. And I hope that you will always have that level of faith in your life. That's absolutely great. We're glad, delighted to have him as a brother. Look at our text. If you'll follow along in that text with me this morning, I want to look at a number of biblical principles that I think will help us in our sharing the good news with those around us. And even with the level of receptivity that we have in our own hearts and lives toward what we learn in the gospel message. The good news of the gospel, at least in part, is that God wants to throw us a party. That's how this parable begins. Uh, In fact, uh, It says the kingdom of heaven is like a a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. If you're reading from the old King James, it says a a wedding banquet. I saw the other night a comedian on YouTube who said uh, when couples, a a husband and a wife, get an invitation to a wedding, they have two completely different reactions. She thinks, oh, it'll be beautiful, let's go. He thinks, there goes my Saturday. She thinks, I wonder what colors they're going to have. And he goes, I wonder what they're going to have to eat. Well, if he was going to this wedding banquet, he wouldn't have to worry about this. I guarantee you, these are not hors d'oeuvres at the reception. The text actually refers to an oxen and a fatted fatted cattle. And so we're talking about a full-fledged meal. Sometimes those wedding feasts would last for days. This is really powerful figurative language to say that God wants to enrich us in Christ in every way so that we will not lack any spiritual thing. God really is wanting to throw us a party. And he desires to, in Paul's words, Ephesians 1 verse 3, bless us in heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. But the reality is, as this parable unfolds, in spite of the wonder of God's invitation, the joys of his heavenly feast, there are a lot of people who decline his gracious invitation. In this parable, there were those who said, they made excuses, and they said, no, thank you very much, I'm not interested in going. Verse 3 actually says, if you'll follow along, he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. That's verse 5, they, but they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. What about that? Considering the, uh, the abundant spiritual feast that God has to offer, why is it that in this parable and in reality today, in the present time, that there are those who still are not willing to accept his gracious invitation? 
Well, the verse explains why, at least in part, and that is they were preoccupied with other interests. It talks about what they went and gave their their attention to. They, like many, perhaps most in our day, just don't have time for the Lord. So the question before us this morning is why do so many others, if this explains at least a a fraction of those who say no when the Lord invites them to to a feast, why are there others who say no to, gracious, to, his, to his gracious offer? I, I don't think there are a lot of people out in the world who are callous enough, even if, they're, if they don't believe in, in Christianity at all. They're not so callous as, as when the, off, the gospel is offered to them and, and someone invites them to become a New Testament Christian, or at least to investigate why they should do that, that they just will you know, blanketly refuse. Say, I'm not the, I'm not the least been interested in whatever it is that you're selling. No, most who decline heaven's invitation, in light of this parable, think they have a good reason for not accepting. They began to make excuses, like those in Jesus' story, Luke 14, verse 18. And we may be able to see those through those excuses as, as thinly veiled pretexts. But the passage seems to indicate that those who are offering these excuses think that they are really solid reasons. I think we, as we share the gospel with people, we need to respond to people the right way. And when someone makes an excuse for for not becoming a Christian, when when the gospel offers them that opportunity of of having their souls saved and their sins washed away, we we wonder, is, is there some kind of button that I can press? Is there some kind of response that I can or that I should make that will motivate a person to do what they need to do as it pertains to salvation? I think the first thing that we need to do is to identify the reasons why people give for not following the Lord. I want to mention four this morning for your consideration. And I I want to think of all of them in light of the text that we've just read. The number one reason that most people give for not obeying the Lord when that invitation is offered is because of inadequate knowledge. Some folks don't become Christians because they just feel like they don't know enough. And I imagine anyone who's a Christian in this audience this morning, which would get the most of us, whenever we've had a conversation with someone about spiritual things, and, and if it comes up that, you know, the opportunity is available, that the baptistry is already, always here, and we're, we're ready to baptize you into Christ, when, whenever we, we make that invitation, we've had the, uh, the experience of someone saying, I just don't feel like I know enough. Once I learn some more, maybe I'll, I'll be willing to make that step. They are impressed with the vast amounts of information contained in the Bible. And so they honestly feel that they are inadequately equipped to be disciples of the Lord. And so that's why they give that response. And we certainly agree that the Bible is, is the whole curriculum of spiritual information. Peter said in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And guess what? That means the same in the original and in the English. Everything that we could possibly need, everything that we could imagine, God has already given us that pertains to life and eternity, they have been provided for us. So it really is true. There's a lot of information between the covers of this book. In fact, sincere scholars will admit that the more they know about the Bible, the more they realize that they don't know everything. You see, that's kind of the old... Uh, cliche about education is when you come to the point when you really realize all the things that you you don't know then you're educated so every new fact that we can master in scripture will uncover additional areas that we don't know about 
So all of that is true. When a person says, I just feel like I don't know enough, then he is acknowledging a reality. There's a lot of information in the 66 books of the Bible. And it's for that reason that God wants us to be perpetual learners. It isn't a matter of just learning a, you know, a standard amount of information, a block of information. Then I make the decision to become a Christian, and then I close the Bible and I never open again. No, we know that that is antithetical to everything that our spiritual progress and growth has to do with. Jesus' own invitation in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, you know the one about coming to me, all you that labor are heavy laden, you know that one. A part of that petition was come and learn of me. So Jesus, whenever he offered the invitation, whenever he tried to tell people, you need to be my disciple, you need to walk in my footsteps, you need to follow my example in terms of spiritual life and, and the existence of an eternal realm, Jesus told them a part of that is, is learning of me. The Great Commission charged that people should be discipled, and then they should be baptized, and then they should be further taught, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The whole Christian life is a long-term experience of education and learning and then applying God's central truths to our lives. I think we all understand that. You don't have to know very much, though, to become a Christian and to start following Jesus. And I know that because the Bible tells me so. The earliest disciples of our Lord certainly did not understand a great deal about who Jesus was and what he had come to do. Even his 12 apostles were oftentimes clueless about the main mission of Jesus when he came to earth. They again thought that it was political in nature, that he was going to come and restore power to Jerusalem and sit on David's throne and all the rest of that, even up to the point of his death and resurrection. They, they had misunderstandings about what Jesus' mission here was all about. It, I'm just telling you this morning, if you have read the gospel accounts through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you have read them through one time, then you know more about Jesus than Peter, James, and John did when they began their Christian education. I think in a similar way, most of the converts that we read about in the book of Acts, which has been appropriately referred to as the book of conversions, these were not people who were PhDs in biblical literature. They were not knowledgeable in, in, in the Bible. In fact, some of them came from pagan backgrounds, and, and they'd heard only one sermon uh, about Jesus or from Jesus before they decided to convert to him. How much could the Ethiopian treasure in Acts 8 have possibly known from that brief chariot ride with Philip? How much could the, uh, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 have really known about God and the full scope of his will for, for his life? At best, I think they understood a bare minimum of God's principles. And yet they were still willing, watch that, they were still willing to commit their lives to Jesus on the basis of that knowledge. And you don't have to know a great deal to become a Christian. It's not, listen carefully to me, it's not how much you know, it is what you know. That is of paramount importance when we're talking about conversion to Christ. It's much more important that you have a teachable heart. You have a real desire to continue to learn and grow. There's an old Persian proverb that says, He who knows not and knows not that he knows not is, is a fool. Shun him. But he who knows not and knows that he knows not is a child. Teach him. I think there's a great deal of truth to that. If you don't know much about Jesus this morning, there's no better time than right now to start learning. So... 
Don't put it off. Here's a second reason that people give. Not just inadequate knowledge, but also insufficient faith. Others have said no to Jesus because they feel that their faith is too weak. I've had people tell me, you know, sometimes I feel like I believe. Other times, I'm just not sure. Sometimes I have my doubts. In fact, one person said exactly that in in contemplating Christianity as I was talking to him. I I just feel like sometimes that I've got everything squared away and there are other times when I've got all these questions. I suspect that none of us are ever 100% free from questions or doubts about our faith. In fact, let me say that if we ever get to the point where we don't have any more questions, then we may be in the greatest danger of all. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, Wherefore let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So the moment that I think that I'm squared away spiritually and I don't have any more questions that need to be answered, that's when I am the greatest danger. But if we're honest, I think most of us would identify with the father of that demonized boy in Mark 9 verse 24 who said to the Lord, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Or as one version renders it, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And I think that's where most of us are this morning. The question isn't whether you have as much faith as Abraham. The question isn't do you trust God as much as the Apostle Paul did. The real issue is whether you're willing to use the degree of faith that you do have at this moment in your life and cultivate it so that it will grow. Are you willing to do that? That's the question. Remember in Mark 16, 15, and 16, in what we call the Great Commission, Jesus said, go preach the gospel, the good news to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, and he who disbelieves shall be condemned. The question is right now, do you have enough faith to do that? Are you willing, like Alex did this week, to, willing to say, I believe that Jesus is God's son, and, and I want his, his blood to cover all of my sins, and I'm willing to be baptized to have my sins washed away? Are you willing to do what Jesus said do in the manner in which Jesus said do it? Will you begin to really follow Jesus with the degree of trust that you have at this present moment? Let me say it by way of an illustration. Suppose that you are on top of a burning building. Heaven forbid that that should happen, but for the sake of the illustration, you're on top of a burning building. Firefighters below are urging you to jump into the safety net, but it looks rather risky. In fact, if you know me at all, you know I have a problem with heights, and so it would look especially risky for me. But there they are with the safety net. They're all yelling at you and urging you to jump into the net because the fire is getting closer and closer and there's no other way out. And and you hesitate with uncertainty. You, You don't know what the net is made of. You don't know anything about the men who are holding the net down on the ground. But then you come to a eureka moment in your life and you realize that nothing could possibly be more foolish than staying right where you are. Nothing, in fact, makes more sense at that moment than to launch out on faith into the arms of safety. You may have a lot of growing to do in your faith. I think we would all acknowledge that we all do. But the important thing is to use the amount of faith that you have right now to step into the saving arms of a loving Savior. Here's a third excuse or reason that people give, and that is the difficulty of Christianity. I believe that's valid. I think everybody needs to, as the Lord taught, count the cost. And to see whether or not I'm willing to, as Billy was talking about this morning, to take up my cross and to follow the Lord, whatever that cross might be. I'm willing to pay whatever price is necessary in order to to follow Jesus faithfully for the rest of my days. There are some people who, maybe a lot of people, 
who refuse to accept God's offer of salvation because they just feel like the road of Christianity is, is just too hard. It's too difficult. And, and make no mistake about it, following Jesus in this world is not easy. I believe everyone in the audience this morning who's already a Christian would acknowledge that. They, they would amen that. They would say that's exactly right. There are times when it's very difficult to live the Christian life in an unchristian world. He was the one who said, Jesus himself, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads unto life and few there be that find it. Matthew 7 and verse 14. And I remind you that if you read that in the English, the word straight there is spelled S-T-R-A-I-T, not the usual spelling, because that word means narrow and difficult to pass. You see, the sheer difficulty of being a follower of Jesus keeps some people from following him at all. Our generation has certainly heard enough about what Dietrich Bonhoeffer has called cheap grace. Bonhoeffer defines cheap grace as the gospel message, the offer of salvation without any demands. And that really is cheap grace. That is the idea that God doesn't require anything of you. There's no response. There's nothing that you can do. There's no action that you can take that will get you any closer to God. So don't even worry about it. That's cheap grace. And we must never make forgiveness easier than God has in a mistaken effort to win the world. We do not dummy down the gospel in order to make it easier for people to respond and so that we can pad the statistics in the church bulletin. We need to admit right up front that Christ's way can be hard. We need to help people, not hinder people from counting the cost. We don't need to talk them out of it. But we need to make sure that we're not asking them to, pl- to sign a blank check and let us fill in the amount later. No, they need to know what's on the amount line. They need to know what it is that they're going to have to sacrifice and give up in order to become a Christian. But they also need to weigh with that, they need to balance with that, what it is that they're going to gain, which is so much more than what they could ever possibly give up. Believe not, the poet said, believe not those who say the upward path is smooth, lest thou should stumble in the way and faint before the truth. It is the only road into the realms of joy, but he who seeks the blessed abode must all his powers employ. There's truth to that. There's one, that, there's one thing that the person on the outside of Christ's kingdom looking in may overlook. And that is alongside of Jesus' stringent demands, and they are stringent on occasion, there is also the offer of his unfailing help. God has never called upon us as his children to do something that he will not then equip us to do. We need to understand that. Now, to be sure, we need to do what Paul told the Philippians to do in Philippians 2.12. And that's where he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Every one of us needs to do that. That is, it is a matter that requires our utmost effort. We must every day make hard choices, as we've been talking about on Sunday nights. Sometimes choices that are not just inconvenient, sometimes choices that involve great sacrifice on our behalf. We need to be willing to do that. But never forget, though, it is God. If you've read Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, please don't forget to read the next verse. Verse 13 says, it is God who works in you to will and to do what pleases him. So while you're working out your own salvation, while you're counting the cost, while you're paying the price, whatever price that might be, to follow Jesus faithfully, realize that God is working in you to achieve his will. Don't ever forget that. 
I've used this illustration before, but it's apropos here, so I'm going to use it again. Tonight, as we gather here, even at 5 o'clock, by the time we're through, it's dark. Most of you have noticed that. I don't know of anyone, at least in their right mind, who says, now I'm going to head home as soon as my headlights reach my house. No, we understand how headlights work. You turn them on, it illuminates the way for a couple of hundred yards. You drive that distance, it illuminates the way further. That's the way the Christian life is. You will never be able to see the end result at this moment in time. But faith will take you to where you need to go, and then God working in you can carry you on home from there. That, that's a part of what we need to do, I think, in, in counting that cost, understanding how important it is that we do what our faith will allow us to do, will cause us to do at this moment in time. And surely that's what Paul meant in Philippians 4.13 when he said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Christ will equip us and strengthen us to do whatever is necessary to follow him faithfully. I believe that with all my heart. With love as our motivation, John said his commandments are not grievous. That is, they're not too difficult to bear. That's 1 John 5 and verse 3. There's one other excuse, one other reason that sometimes people give for not becoming a Christian, and that is they think they have plenty of time. I don't really need to make that decision right now. When we sing the invitation song in a minute, I can always do that later. How many have excused themselves from Christian commitment and service because they think they have plenty of time? To make things right. And how many of them have been wrong about that? Like Governor Felix over in Acts 24-25, they defer obedience to a convenient, to a convenient season. That's literally a more opportune time. You know, the sad reality is, at least from the commentators that I have read, that Felix had heard Paul frequently over a two-year period, and yet apparently during that two years had never found an opportune time to say yes to Jesus. As someone has said, procrastination is the thief of souls, and that's right. We need to urge others to act, to obey, while they'll still have the time, and not to wait for some uncertain future. I remember a line from years ago from a Neil Simon play. A man and his wife are, are talking, and she says something along the lines of, when are we going to finally take that vacation, just you and me? And his response was, sometime in the murky future. And that's the way a lot of people make their plans. That's the way a lot of people or some people respond to the invitation of the Lord. I'm going to do that, but it's just not right now. It's sometime in the murky future. Tomorrow's sun may never rise to bless our long-deluded sight. This is the time, oh, then be wise, be saved, oh, tonight. You know, not only is finding the right time a factor for some in rejecting Christ, but so is a lack of time. Like those invited to the wedding feast, look at verse 5 again of Matthew 22, if you will. The Bible says, the text says, but they made light of it, and they went their ways. Making time for the things that really matter. That's important. In fact, that is the most important thing we can do with our lives. And, and using that time wisely are, are two of the greatest challenges that confront us as human beings. A preacher once told a story about a little boy who was taken by his parents to a symphony concert. He was already a music lover. They had tried to kind of cultivate that interest and love in him. And so they thought, here's a great opportunity. They, they finally had a, an orchestra, a well-renowned orchestra in town, and, and we'll take him and we'll let him see what goes on in one of those kinds of concerts. And sure enough, 
Just as they had hoped for, he was entranced by the music, by the movement of the musicians, by the movement of the music itself. Uh, I mean, he was just absolutely, you know, it's kind of a jaw-dropping experience for him. And he was especially impressed by the guy who was standing in the back of the orchestra who would occasionally hit two cymbals together resoundingly. I mean, that fascinated him. So after the program, his parents took the boy backstage to meet some of the musicians. And the boy quickly singled out the man who played those cymbals. And the boy asked the man this question, what do you have to know to play the cymbals? And he thought for a moment and responded, not much, just when. You don't have to know everything to become a Christian. And there isn't a whole lot that you have to weigh in terms of making that decision that doesn't require a decision that you can make at this moment in your time. That is, we can make that decision right now. As I was thinking about and working on this lesson for today, I was thinking about 2019 for all the obvious reasons. And I've mentioned from this pulpit before, 2019 was a tough year for a lot of the families in this congregation. You lost loved ones. We had a lot of funerals in 2019. And I'm also thinking about 2020, and I don't mean for this to sound morbid at all, but I got to thinking about Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, where he said, Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. And I thought in an audience this size, there may be people in the audience this morning, that this will be the last invitation song you'll ever hear. Now, I don't believe in scaring people into the baptistry. That's not my intent. But I hope that we appreciate that life isn't forever. And it may well be that there are those that are gathered under the sound of my voice this morning who will never have another opportunity to say yes to Jesus. Count the cost. Be willing to carry the cross. But be baptized to have your sins washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ based upon your confession of faith that Jesus is God's son and your determination to turn your back on sin. If you're a child of God and you recognize that you've been You've been living a kind of life that isn't conducive to spiritual growth. In fact, it's been antithetical to everything that God wants and has planned for your life. And that you need to come back and make a second run at Calvary. We pray that you'll do that not tonight, but right now, while we stand and while we sing. What?